Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Cecilia Lay and this is Fifth Emission. For years, Wood Street in Oakland was home to about 300 people. It was Northern California's largest unhoused community. They lived in about a mile-long stretch of land under the A80 freeway. Over nearly a decade, residents there built a settlement that became a refuge for people who had been evicted or pushed out of other parts of the city. They parked their RVs there, built makeshift shelters, and a self-sustaining infrastructure, which included things like power, a kitchen, a free clothing store, and even spaces for healthcare services and events. In the fall of last year, the Wood Street population began to shrink. Oakland began evicting its residents in order to make space to build 170 units of affordable housing. The final eviction process started in early April. For weeks, the remaining residents, about 60 of them, resisted. They tried to block public works crews and attempted to negotiate with the city. But by early May, the eviction was complete. Documentary filmmaker Karen Creighton was there to witness it all. The crushing of people's homes. The arguments between residents and the police. If you were actually, actually concerned about legal order, about your own law and order. Stop touching her, you're creating a safety hazard! Back up! And the police didn't make it easy for journalists like her to observe the eviction process. You need to back up, okay? Hey, I'm not interfering. Okay, just just back up. Today on Fifth Emission, Karen Creighton is here to talk about what she saw while filming her documentary about Wood Street. She's a former Fifth Emission producer, and I'm so glad she's back to share the final days of Oakland's largest unhoused community settlement and to discuss where former Wood Street residents are now. Karen, great to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Karen, let's start here. Tell me, what does Wood Street look like today? So today, Wood Street is just an empty slab of land. No one is left living there. The city has bulldozed countless people's houses and put up really large fencing so no one can get back in. As far as I know, the street's still blocked off and they're preparing to do soil testing so they can start construction. Now, the last time you were on the show was on April 10th. That was right when the final eviction of the Wood Street encampment was starting. But as you know very well, the eviction wasn't just a single day. How long was this entire process? It took about three and a half weeks, pretty much a full month. It started out as a two-week thing. The city posted for two weeks. They have to post in advance before they do encampment sweeps. And then midway after some advocates had protested and kind of held up the process, the city posted again, and it ended up being most of the month of April. Now, you woke up, I understand, very early each morning to visit and film the eviction during those weeks. What was access like for you as a filmmaker during that time? And you were going there for 10 months, but how was this maybe different than those other times? Yeah, it was so different. I had to get up around 5 a.m. most days after a certain point in the eviction to get past the police line 
the city of Oakland blocked off the lot, you know, in the second half of the eviction after the advocates had really put up a fight in the first half, they came back with strong force and put up some fencing. They had, I want to say maybe 50 cops most days and set up a police line that would not allow anyone access after 6 a.m. So I had to get there before 6 a.m. to make sure that I could report on this really important story. I mean, that's pretty incredible waking up so early every day to do that. What were the legal risks for you to be there and to cross that line? And were they even clear to you? Yeah. I mean, to this day, I don't still really know. I definitely consulted some lawyers to make sure I had a backup plan, but the rules were really unclear and not laid out at all. You know, they wouldn't let anyone pass the police line, but if you happened to already be there, you know, it seemed to be no problem. They weren't happy about it, but they didn't kick anyone out. It was very strange. I woke up every day thinking, is today the day I'm going to be arrested for reporting on homelessness? I don't know. But, you know, thankfully that did not happen. And who else was present on the site besides the resident and maybe journalists like yourself? Uh, There were a lot of advocates present. And Wood Street, you know, has been one of the luckier encampments because they do have so much help from outside advocates who, who really care and try to support the community. People, you know, for years have come by and brought food. That's how Kaban Wood was established at the north end of the encampment was through help of advocates. Like they've had a huge presence and that presence continued through the eviction process as people tried to support people in moving and, you know, or defending their home, whatever, whatever they wanted. I want to understand how the eviction process went down. Let's start with the first day on April 10th. What did that day look like? Yeah, April 10 was a pretty dramatic day in the eviction. You know, everybody was ready. Advocates were ready to kind of put up a fight. There was a heavy police presence that came in with the Department of Public Works, and they tried to start moving things, and people really pushed back against that. The city came in with fencing, which is something that I've never seen at an encampment eviction before. It was a really strong show of force. And they kind of pushed in on the lot, essentially just working on the street the first couple of days, moved a couple people's trailers. You know, they offered them spots in other city-run sites for people who wanted to take that. It was a pretty big day of protest. The advocates and residents held a press conference at the beginning of the day. Thank you for all your support, guys. This has been my home for a very long time. Um, I have blood here, sweat, tears friends, family, a new lease of life, and we can't just go out that fast. We need better alternatives than what they're currently offering. Residents did not want to move. If they were going to have to move, they wanted better options than what the city was offering them. The city has been offering people spots in an RV lot in East Oakland or a cabin site that they built on the north end of the lot, and many, many residents did not like either of those options. So Lamonte is one person at Wood Street that I've been following, one of the main characters in my film, and a person who's very near and dear to my heart. His home was destroyed eventually in the eviction process, and, you know, Wood Street is very important to him. He's one of the resident leaders in the community, and he really didn't want to see it go. They're trying to come in here and build a 100-unit apartment building that will not house any one of us. Not one of us. Affordable housing... It's not affordable for us. Where do I go? I have three dogs, 10 years worth of stuff, my tools. What do I do? 
The system in which they are providing for us is a failed system. It does not work. They cannot prove that they've housed one person permanently. So there were attempts by both residents of Wood Street and advocates to try to interrupt the evictions. How did they try to do that? So at the beginning of the eviction, the first couple weeks, People started building barriers in the middle of the street, built of like trash debris. The city came in with dump trucks and bulldozers and were pretty easily able to move those things. But some advocates and residents did sit on the back of dump trucks to stop them. When you go home at night, do you feel good about yourself forcibly evicting unhoused people? That's how you get your paycheck? It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And you have the audacity to talk at me for moving in front of this truck. Get the fuck out of here, bruh. It's disgusting. Shame on you. And was that successful? Were they able to slow down the eviction process at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they definitely slowed it down. The first couple of weeks, it moved pretty slowly. And I think after that, that's why the city came back with so much force. What did those tensions sound and feel like? Yeah, it was really tense the whole month, <laughs> the, the dynamics. For so many of these residents, you know, people have been to jail. They've had bad experiences with police. And so bringing in such a strong force of strength with police is, is you know, not a great footing to step in on. It doesn't put people in a good mindset. You move your hand from in front of me, please. And move one from in so it was really tense, and there were a few arrests made throughout the eviction process, all on what I can confidently say are trumped-up charges, and I think all of the charges were later dismissed. But residents and advocates were arrested later, like, as a show of force, essentially, to kind of get the eviction process moving and get some of the, you know, leaders out of the way. Now, at the same time, Oakland has insisted that it's offered services and alternatives for residents. What did you see on the site? Was there that effort being made by the city of Oakland? Yeah, the city of Oakland had a list of everyone who lives on the site, and they offered those people spots in the cabin sites or in the safe RV lot in East Oakland. And often they did have medical care, some, but mostly it was, you know, just offering spots. Operation Dignity and Urban Alchemy were the service providers trying to just link people up with those two services. But many people didn't want those services. So it was kind of a, a long, drawn out process. Mm. I also understand that residents and advocates also took some legal actions. What did they do? So there were a couple of different court hearings that happened in the month. The first court hearing was asking for a temporary restraining order, which is something the residents have done numerous times. And this time they asked on the basis, uh, like the legal argument that the city was refusing to store larger items for people like trailers and tiny homes, which a lot of people at Wood Street had. And I think, you know, for a lot of unhoused people moving into city services, they really want to be able to know that they have another option if the city services don't work out for them. I think only recently the city of Oakland started keeping track of how many people actually move into permanent supportive housing through these programs that they set up. And I still to this day have not seen any data on that. People have been through these programs before and they're still on the street. So they want to know, like, if I'm moving into a tiny home for 90 days to six months and it doesn't work out, 
what am I going to have at the end of that? They don't want to end up with less on the street in a tent when before they had a trailer, a tiny home they'd built. But the TRO was denied and they did not get a temporary restraining order and the city does not have to provide storage for larger items. So the eviction, I would say, really ramped up after this TRO hearing. And a couple days later, the city came back in force and that's when those arrests were made. Put your hands behind my back. What am I under arrest for? Because you were a witness to this process, I mean, watching their belongings and their prized and treasured possessions getting moved away by dump trucks and bulldozers, I mean, I would imagine that's very emotional. Yeah, it's deeply emotional for people. And it's, you know, it's something that I've feel like I've seen so much now that I feel a little callous to it, but mm-hmm. it is so traumatic. And and the thing is, these people have been through this process so many times before in different ways. People moved to Wood Street because they were told by police that they could stay there and they would not have to be evicted from other places around the city of Oakland again. And so it's so many people who had been there for so long and had really built lives there. They have pretty big spaces for themselves and, you know, they're moving their treasured possessions, which to some of us might look like trash, but to them are really important, you know, and and I, it's, it's just such a, a painful, painful process. Oakland offered Wood Street residents alternative sites to live in. Where did they go and how are those sites working out for them? Filmmaker Karen Creighton shares after a quick break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Karen Creighton, you mentioned earlier that the police restricted your access to Wood Street while you were trying to film the eviction process. That happened to other journalists, too. What kind of legal action was taken in response to that? Yeah, Jessica Prado, an amazing photojournalist, was denied access to the lot multiple times and filed with another journalist and two of the residents at the site for residents' First Amendment rights and journalists' First Amendment rights. And that was heard by the same judge who's heard all of the cases at Wood Street around the TRO. Basically, that was denied as well. It was uh, supposed to put a pause on the eviction. The judge said the city had to double the amount of public information officers who were on site. The city said their PIOs were present to make sure journalists were safe while on a work zone, but it felt more like they were using their PIOs basically as press monitors to escort journalists inside the lot. It was a really inconsistent practice throughout the eviction, and sometimes journalists were denied access entirely. Sometimes they were allowed to be on the lot for just 15 minutes with a city escort. So the judge ruled that the city had to double what they had called a minimum amount of time that journalists were allowed to be on site from 15 to 30 minutes and add more escorts. After the judge's ruling, the city didn't restrict journalists access to the site nearly as much. But for me personally, as a journalist who's reporting on sensitive issues, who took a lot of time to build close relationships with people and build trust in this community, having someone monitor my movements and follow me around while I speak with people really impedes access. It was something I'd never experienced before. Now, Karen, let's fast forward to day 17 of this process. And that's when the city of Oakland issues a notice to residents that Anyone remaining on the site by 9 a.m. the next day will be arrested. 
Tell me about the reaction from the community once that notice goes out. That happened in the evening that day, and I was at home trying to rest, and I got a phone call from someone saying, like, this is what's happening, get back here. So I came back and, and you know, saw kind of the aftermath of that, but it was it was so tense, uh, so scary, honestly, because I also knew that I would be out there tomorrow at 9 a.m. And there were maybe three or four residents who hadn't moved their possessions at that point. They did not want the services that were offered to them. I think also just the overwhelm of moving your whole life really gets to people and it makes it really hard. Like you, It's hard to make a decision. And then at 9 a.m., I, I asked the public information officer, or maybe at like 8.55, I asked the public information officer, uh, <laughs> will I will I be arrested if even if I'm, you know, escorted here and a certified journalist? And he was like, I don't know, I'll get back to you. But, you know, no one was arrested at 9 a.m. Everyone was working to move the last tiny home off the lot, move people's possessions. So I guess the city, you know, saw some, some effort that they were okay with, but it was uh, an intimidation tactic for sure. So fast forward to today, you know, the Wood Street encampments completely cleared out and Oakland released a statement earlier this month saying that 80 percent of residents at Wood Street accepted shelter. Where exactly did they go? I mean, it's true. They did. They accepted shelter under great duress and moved to the cabin site that the city had built on the north end of the lot, specifically for Wood Street residents, as well as the RV lot in East Oakland. I don't know if I have the numbers, but my guess would be that most people moved to the cabin site. And since then, I've heard numerous complaints from people about how the site is run, the different rules and regulations they're subject to there, which frankly is why many people didn't want to go. They had talked to the city for months about it. They had tried to negotiate better conditions. And some conditions were met. You know, these cabins are a little bit bigger than the previous tough sheds. They have mini fridges. They have a laundry facility on site. Many of the complaints I'm hearing from people, they don't have a kitchen, which was a really big deal and something they really wanted to negotiate. They wanted like a community space and a space where they could cook. We've been told the kitchen is on its way, but currently it's just a refrigerator and a microwave. No one is given keys to their cabins or to the site itself. They have to be let in by a security guard and let into their own specific cabin by a security guard. And people have told me stories of being locked out even overnight. Mm. Community areas like bathrooms are left unclean and I have toilet paper is being rationed from what I've heard. People have, you know, also told me they've been retaliated against for complaining about these conditions. Like ultimately, it seems like a pretty frustrating situation for a lot of these people, especially when they've had such freedom and, you know, autonomy in the past. So what a journey for you personally as a documentary filmmaker to follow this eviction process You've witnessed the struggles. You've listened to the arguments for trying to stay in this encampment. Ultimately, they're not able to. What do you think are the most critical lessons from the Wood Street community that everyone shouldn't forget here? Yeah, it's such a hard question. I don't know that I've even reflected on it because it was such an intense experience for me, too. It feels stark to see this community literally demolished. And, you know, the city is saying that, you know, now 60 people are no longer living on the street and they've been moved into services, which, you know, in one way is totally accurate. But 
they weren't living on the street. They were living in, you know, homes and trailers that they'd built. They were living in a community. Although it may not look acceptable to some people, it worked for a lot of people. They had a harm reduction method that, you know, was working for them. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe not acceptable in the system of capitalism as it functions in America, but it was something really unique. And in many ways, it was beautiful. And and that feels like a loss in some way. But I also feel like one of the things, at least from my perspective, what was unique about Wood Street, and like you mentioned, is that they they did have so much support from advocates, from other housed residents. It wasn't just about a community, about unhoused people, but sort of this ability for a community to form that's actually more inclusive than maybe most people actually thought, and it included you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, something that was so beautiful I thought about Wood Street is that it's uh, it, it offers space for, for housed people to really get involved and know their neighbors and really feel like they were part of a community. And I feel like that's something that's so rare. So often we will walk past a homeless person on the street and, you know, not even make eye contact. But here people really were given an opportunity to to get to know their neighbors and like, you know, to see the beauty in everyone, even though you may feel as if you have so many surface level differences. And in that way, it truly has been, you know, a beautiful experience, even for me as a filmmaker. Karen, thank you for documenting and sharing this community with me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Cecilia. All the audio from Wood Street in this episode was recorded by documentary filmmaker Karen Creighton. Karen's an artist in residence with SF Film. She's making a documentary about the Wood Street community. To learn more about her work, follow her on Twitter. She's at Karen Creighton. In a statement released by the city after the Wood Street eviction was completed, Oakland officials said 46 residents accepted shelter at the Wood Street Cabin Program and 11 moved to a safe RV parking program. Oakland Mayor Sheng Tao said that, quote, safety and securing dignified shelter for every resident were our primary goals in the closure. Thank you to King Kaufman for editing this episode and thank you for listening. <laughs>